Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Latofsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And today we're going to be talking about, as I've been informed, a couple of ape movies and not monkey movies. Yeah, let's lead off with that. So <laughs> I actually looked this up to provide some key uh, scientific information. Why is it that, you know, they're not monkeys, although we all say that? And just before we started recording, I was referencing the Escape from the Planet of the Apes thing where Cornelius, despite not having any reason in his life where this would have ever actually happened, seems mad to be called a monkey, that it's uh, derogatory. They're apes, not monkeys. Well, I went straight to Britannica. Okay. I was going to say, worth mentioning, the ape in question. Yeah. Well, we're doing King Kong. <laughs> uh, and we're actually doing specifically the 1976 King Kong uh, this year, for many reasons, has been hitting me with all kind of levels of nostalgic things I'd like to revisit. And I really wanted to see King Kong. And it was uh, Scream Factory that put out this stunning new release of the 76 King Kong. And we'll talk about that, obviously. But we also went back and rewatched the 33 one, which I spent uh, you know a lifetime watching four million times. It's been a while since I saw that one. But we threw that one into for context. And so we'll talk a little bit about that one, too. We will not be talking about Peter Jackson's version, because, come on, you know why. Anyway, monkeys and apes. So I actually went to Britannica, and one of the things I thought was 100% a rule is not quite 100% a rule. Mm -hmm. I told you before we started recording that the difference between a monkey and an ape is a monkey has a tail. Monkeys don't always have tails, but even Britannica says that is one of the primary ways you can usually tell is that monkeys have tails and apes do not. Um, Except when they also don't, but yeah. they do. And they're both considered primates. Simians, by the way, are higher primates. But there are a number of other difference between, differences between monkeys and apes, some that I didn't know, most of which uh, involve the fact that apes are definitely much closer to us in intelligence, in usual uh, observance of tool use, and a higher ability with language. And this was an interesting little thing I've never heard before. Apes have an appendix and monkeys don't. And hmm. maybe that's another indicator why they're closer to human. I don't know. But they did say the best, this is straight from Britannica. However, perhaps the best way to remember, like with so many things, is rote memorization. There are only a handful of ape species, while there are hundreds of species of monkeys. If the primate you're trying to place is not a human, gibbon, chimpanzee, bonobo, orangutan or gorilla or a lemur then it's a monkey it's a lemur an ape and lemur is an ape this is going to be a whole science podcast never mind the movie because i'm learning all kinds of things why don't we do that song that we had planned about oh boy the lemur. okay i am willing to travel and would make an excellent companion to any elderly or unelderly elderly person gentlemen please consider me Thank you, won't you? Thank you. So anyway, there you go. There's the difference between monkeys and apes, and that's why King Kong is not a monkey, damn it. But we still call him that very often, and uh, it's just one of many things that people have wrong, including another thing I can throw out immediately, which is that it wasn't until it looks like, and I might be wrong about this, but it looks like it wasn't until really the 2000s that Skull Island was ever really called Skull Island. We all grew up remembering this, particularly all those of us who grew up with the original King Kong. But if you really pay attention, one of the things you realize, 
They never once call Skull Island Skull Island in either the original film or the 76 film or any other version of King Kong until the 2000s. Don't they describe it as looking like a skull? They refer, in the 33 one, they refer to Skull Mountain, okay, which is on Skull Island. They refer to Skull Mountain, and in fact, Faye Ray at one point says, oh yes, of course you told me, Skull Mountain, she has to repeat it. And that's in 33. Only reference to the skull is the Skull Mountain. And then, when Jeff Bridges is doing his little rundown of the information, when he reveals himself on the boat in the 76 one, he refers to the Beach of the Skull. As someone who had been washed up, they referred to the Beach of the Skull. That's the only reference to Skull in 1976. It wasn't until the 2000s that they started calling it anything other than Kong Island, or in some of the Toho stuff, other names. But most recently, there's the Skull Island movie in 2017, Kong Skull Island. It's part of this news cycle. First real time in a major film that they nailed it down as Skull Island. We just always remember it that way. So, there you go. Well, at least, I mean, there was a skull mentioned in the other one. Yes. It's not like remembering it, and it was never even mentioned as being skull-like. So, like I said, this started from Scream Factory, as so many of our episodes really do, because they're awesome. Well, it kind of started because I had never seen the 76 one. I mean, I've seen the original plenty of times. It's on TV quite a lot. Um, but I had never seen the 76 King Kong. We thought, why don't we start there? Especially because that's sort of the, the King Kong movie of your childhood. Well, I mean, both of them are. I mean, I I, yeah. I love the original. I love the original far more than I have affection for the 76 one. But the 76 one will always mean something to me. Because, mainly because of the network showings, which we'll we'll talk about in a minute. But... It's interesting, though, too, I was going to look and I forgot to do this before we started recording, because one of the reasons I got the Scream Factory thing was because for the first time ever, they've put out not just a beautifully restored version of the 76 theatrical film, but the TV edit that ran on the network in a two-night event a couple times, several times, uh, in the 70s and early 80s. It's just stunning to me to finally be able to own all that extra footage that went missing for such a long time. And as I've told you many times, the thing that always drives me the most crazy about the 76 one was this was one of my lasting childhood memories is that I remember uh, Charles Grodin's incredibly annoying character, Fred, getting <laughs> stomped by Kong toward the end of the film. Spoiler alert. Yeah, well, you know, you've, you've listened to our podcast, right? Full spoilers <laughs> for everything. Besides, the movie is, you know, 40 plus years old. So It's also King Kong. And, so. and the original is you know, way back there. So, you know, let it go. Anyway, there's the scene where Groden's character is stomped by Kong during the big reveal in, in New York. And I always remembered seeing Kong's foot lift back up and seeing his hat on the ground. And then... For decades, I never saw any evidence of that anywhere. And every time I ever went to look for the movie, I would watch the movie and it stops. Like, it stops awkwardly, too. If you watch the theatrical cut, it's almost like you can tell that they cut something because it weirdly doesn't cut clean. Like, it doesn't cut when the foot lands. It almost looks like it cuts as the foot is about to start, like you know something else is happening. Mm. And then they cut away. And it, was, and it drove me crazy. And this is the days before the internet. This is one of the long list of things I had from my childhood 
that I started to think I was crazy. That like, did I remember this wrong? And then eventually I started to find people as the internet crept in saying, does anybody remember the thing where on the network they showed a lot of extra stuff of King Kong and the other movies? And then finally one day on YouTube, I found a horrible like VHS thing somebody had dumped of all the extra stuff. And there was the scene with the hat from King Kong. And now on Scream Factory's release, they've restored a really nice version of the TV edit. The one thing I forgot to look at before we started recording was... I was kind of curious where they cut between night one and night two when they turned it into a two night Mm. thing. I don't remember where, but I didn't look anyway. And the thing to me that's so fascinating about that whole experience for you is that I'm used to the idea of when movies air on television, you get a shorter version of the movie. Like I'm not really used to the idea of it being a multi-night event or adding more to it to create a movie night on TV, for me, basically any theatrical movie I've ever watched on TV has been either cut for content or cut for time or both. And it's less than the theatrical version. This is a very specific window of time. And I speak now to all of us in the same basic generation who know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a very specific moment in time that basically lasts from end of the 70s early 80s to like no later than almost like mid 80s maybe 86 87 there's like this weird moment where particularly like abc like the abc sunday night movie King Kong, I think, was NBC. King Kong loves Jessica Lang. I'm a Libra. Obsessive Desire becomes an unforgettable three-hour movie spectacular. And this tall, dark stranger takes this Oscar nominee to new heights in the colossal new King The networks would get these big blockbuster movies, and it was all part of also an era that was changing in so many ways. And you're talking about the ones in particular that I know everybody out there who knows what I'm talking about knows is you got King Kong, uh, Superman and Superman 2, Star Trek, the Wrath of Khan. I think the motion picture also had the extra stuff. There are a couple others I'm probably not remembering right at the moment, but like there was this little cluster of them. And when they ran them on the network, they ran them as big night or two night events and added back in tons of stuff. Sometimes against the wishes of the directors in question who didn't necessarily have control. If I remember right, like Donner on Superman wasn't happy about like a whole bunch of stuff thrown back in because it really... You watch the network version, it doesn't flow in the way you would necessarily shape a story. But the point was they're giving you extra bonus stuff. Like you're all going to see the big blockbuster movie, but now you can sit at home and watch more of it in a way you never saw. But they're pulling all of those extras off the cutting room floor. 
Yeah. And and in the case of things like Wrath of Khan, which is wonderful, though, is that sometimes entire subplots would come out. Like in Wrath of Khan, for instance, there's a kid you see briefly in a couple scenes in the theatrical cut. It's only in the TV cut that we find out he's Scotty's nephew. And there's sort of a whole thread of him being related to him that's only in that because they pulled all that stuff back in. There's alternate takes of scenes where you only saw them in close-up and this one you see. And in King Kong... They decided to make it a two-night event, so they wound up putting back in somewhere around like 40, 45 minutes of additional footage. I haven't actually watched it in preparation for this. We just watched the theatrical one. Since you hadn't seen it, I thought you need to see the Mm -hmm. movie, you know, and I haven't actually revisited the TV stuff. But what I found interesting was on some of the online reviews... I've seen people talking about how when you really go back and revisit it today, you realize most of that extra stuff is so inconsequential and like languid and unimportant to the progression of the story. It was a way for them to pad it out and make it an event when it really isn't necessary. But it's still interesting to see if you're interested in the film. Mm -hmm. Maybe one day I'll go back and see. All the extra hat-on-ground footage and such. That's the only one I think should just be cut right back into the theatrical (laughs) cut. Who doesn't want to see Charles Grodin's hat on the ground? That's just the perfect little... So anyway, we decided to revisit King Kong. I've always loved the 76 King Kong. I, I would certainly say that I feel like the 33 King Kong is an early cinematic masterpiece in a lot of ways. But I still have a lot of affection for the 76 one. I was joking earlier... I've never seen the whole Peter Jackson one. I've seen bits of it. I have no intention of ever sitting through that whole thing. I loved his Lord of the Rings movies. I think immediately after that, it's like his brain broke. I haven't seen it either. And the most recent ones also, I find it's like the Godzilla stuff that comes out now. I grew up enjoying Godzilla movies. I can't say I was as rabid a fan of that as I was of other things, but it was definitely a part of my life, like Mm -hmm. buying Godzilla toys, seeing all the movies. And yet, every time they come up with new stuff now and I see the new ones, I just see trailers that just look like a wash of brown and gray CGI in the rain in a fake city. And I think to myself, it doesn't look interesting to me. It looks boring and it looks like my eyes will slide off the screen or hurt. And I just am not interested. And like most recently, they did a new Kong versus Godzilla and there's nothing in it that looks remotely interesting to me. And I feel kind of sad about that. But We watched the trailer for that one and it felt so much like a parody that like we were both <laughs> laughing yeah. at the trailer, except they genuinely meant it they mean to it. be the trailer and meant for it to have this like seriousness and gravitas to it. And like the whole thing just felt like a joke that somebody would make to make a trailer about this. And it's also interesting in the sense that Kong goes on like Godzilla. He, he's much older than Godzilla. And both of them are icons that carry on. And I'll briefly point out that like King Kong is, in essence, the, the film and the character that starts the entire lineage of the modern kaiju film. And, and for a while, my Zombie Mania co-author and I, we were going to do a follow-up book called Kaiju Mania that went by the wayside for a variety of reasons. But we certainly immersed ourselves in that stuff for quite a while and had grown up with that like many other things, like I said. And the thing is, basically, short version is that Kong came out in 33, huge hit, was re-released, huge hit. By the time it came around again in 52, 
everybody was like, I don't know if anybody's going to be interested in watching a 20-year-old movie and care about it. Huge hit. And at that point, Warner Brothers said, we want one, and they developed Beasts from 20,000 Fathoms, another favorite of mine, which you've seen now, too. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that one sometime. And that led to Toho looking at Beasts and incredible success and saying we want one of those and that led to the creation of godzilla 52 53 54 and then all of a sudden we're off and running and Kong continues and godzilla continues and kaiju stuff is all over the place and it's all started from kong and there's an amazing longevity to this character and one thing i think we'll certainly touch on is the fact that it's interesting how long this character has existed and continued and is even being revitalized to this day with these new films, despite the fact that it seems so inherently steeped in such incredibly problematic, to say the least, racism and colonialism. I mean, basically, the fact of the matter is, King Kong is a character that you could argue, I'm sure plenty of people do, that should be left in the past. That it's a character that shouldn't have its story told anymore. Like you've said about, like, for instance, another good example is Tarzan. Mm. The, and, and even more recently, I see so many of my peers talking about how they're revisiting Raiders of the Lost Ark for its 40th anniversary. And, oh, isn't this exciting? And, oh, Harrison Ford's making new Indiana Jones. And I don't know what it is that they can't see that I now see. But I think to myself, I can't imagine a time where I'll ever feel comfortable watching Indiana Jones again because his character is itself based on characters and a time that is also so deeply racist and misogynistic and hateful toward other cultures that, yeah, fine, I grew up with it. I enjoyed it at the time. It doesn't mean I have to look at it again ever. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine doing that. And yet Kong keeps going. I read a whole article where someone was pointing out that in one way of interpreting Kong was it was fear of the black man and the threat that white people felt that represented to white women, which is so many different issues all wrapped up in this horrific, you know, metaphor. And which you could see in both versions of the film. Absolutely. That we and yet we're still making King Kong movies. And I'm and and it's not like people don't notice. I mean, again, when the new one came out, I saw tons of articles looking back at the whole history of the character, talking about it from an academic perspective, about, you know, is this just indicative of the fact that we are still in such a deeply racist global culture that a character like this can continue? Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was worth bringing that up right at the front because it's like we're going to talk about these movies. And I've already now said a couple times here, I love the, the, the first two movies for various reasons because they're part of my childhood, but they also feel wrong. Well, here's what I'll say on that note as we sort of start this off, is that in both versions of the film that we watched, but perhaps even more so in the 76 version, Kong is not necessarily portrayed as the villain, in my opinion. It's like in 76, the villain is the oil company, and specifically, what's his name, Fred? Yeah. Of course, why not? Fred. Which <laughs> just sounds so Fred, silly. Fred Wilson of Petrox. Fred Oilman. Mm -hmm. um, is clearly the villain from the outset, never mind when he decides that bringing back Kong is this financial opportunity. He knows that 
this is a remote island. He knows that there's a likelihood that it's going to be a difficult and dangerous and perhaps, you know, could result in death type of journey for his crew, like sailing into a hurricane, and is so focused on getting this oil off of this hot spot that he's found that he's taken it upon himself to say, you know, I'm in charge, everyone else has to do what I say, and that's what we're going to do. And they land and they see pretty quickly that it's actually an inhabited island. And for him, his eyes zero right in on what he sees as oil bubbling up in a puddle in there. Oil, that is. Black gold. Texas tea. He looks right past all the people and just goes right to the oil and thinks like, this is it. We're going to get this. This is going to be my moment. I've discovered this new cache of oil. I'm going to be like carried through the streets for a ticker tape parade because I discovered more oil, you know, and that's clearly the villain in this situation. And especially in the 76 version, Kong is portrayed pretty sympathetically um, in terms of how he interacts with the villagers Definitely how he interacts with our female lead, um, Dwan, which I could do a whole podcast about why did they name her Dwan? Uh, maybe I just don't understand the 70s, really. I think she's one of the most 70s characters of any film ever. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, if you took the character and crushed her up and put her in a bottle and then, like, opened it up like studio 54 would just like escape from it <laughs> yeah i think so like you take the cork out and like a genie like you're mm-hmm. instantly in a disco and also everyone's on roller skates and her name is Dwan. and there's coke everywhere everywhere introducing so, jessica lang <laughs> introducing jessica lang <laughs> so to me that's not downplaying the interpretation of seeing kong as this threat and this threat in particular to white women like that's completely valid read on these movies and for me would also be enough of an argument to say whether or not there are other themes at play in the film if that's something that really sort of shines itself above the others then that theme alone is enough to say we don't need to keep remaking this again mm-hmm. um i think that The story has certainly been told. I don't think you're going to get any more storytelling. There are plenty of other ways to explore some of the other themes and metaphors and relationships without doing a Kong movie again. From what I remember, the one they did in 2017 actually moved it to like the Vietnam era. Yeah, I think so. uh, But again, I just have no interest in it. I just don't want to see it. But I'd forgotten, by the way, when you started talking, I remembered this was another one of the reasons we watched it was because Charles Grodin died recently. Mm -hmm. And uh, first thing I thought of was Midnight Run. And I'm not very popular with the Chicago Police Department, okay? Why aren't you popular with the Chicago Uh, Police Department? That's a holiday. What, do we know each other? Why? Why? What did you do? Why aren't you popular with Chicago Police Department? Something that really doesn't concern you. Which a lot of people did. Which we also watched recently. Yeah, which is like one of the most definitive performances he ever gave. But 
if I was thinking childhood, I was thinking what other things, and seems like old times is another one. I'm thinking there's no need for any human being on earth to rewatch a Chevy Chase, Goldie Hawn, Charles Grodin movie again. So I've got some ideas for the campaign I'd like to sit down and discuss with you. Why don't we have dinner next week? Tuesday night at our house? Aurora's chicken pepperoni. <laughs> I know how you love it. Instead, I thought, hey, King Kong, because that's also, this is also Grodin doing what he does best. He's like, he, he manages to be in a dramatic film. It's not like he necessarily gets a laugh per se, but he's close and he's just so cartoonishly not evil, but like dismissive of all other concerns. Like you said, Mm -hmm. it's his kind of character. It's perfect for him. Which also, I mean, this reveals just slightly our, our small generational gap. Me being a geriatric millennial myself When I think childhood and I think Charles Grodin, I think of Beethoven, (laughs) the slobbering dog. (laughs) So it's a slightly different uh, view of Charles Grodin, although he is kind of like hapless and out of control. And he's the father. He's the the father. Yeah. Yeah. Family likes you more than they like me. Why? All you do is is drool and shed and eat. You're never getting out of there again. Never. Do we understand each other? Also, if I remember right, he plays the old man, the father, in the terrible, terrible TV movie sequel to A Christmas Story. Yeah, I mean, that's a part of his career. You can't see my face. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, there was one. Mm. Um, Let's not revisit that. Yeah, it's terrible. Mary Steenburgen plays the mother, I think. So, Grodin's Fred in this, and, and that's the thing. Okay, so, another thing was that in the wake of all the recent revitalization of the character and the monster universe this new group is building through the new Godzilla and Kong movies there's been a lot of discourse on all the various pop culture sites about all the Kong movies which also gave me like the desire to go back and have us take a look at a couple things we'd want to watch and these are the ones I wanted to look at what I found interesting was the 76 King Kong used to be pretty universally torn to pieces as a less than satisfying remake of a classic. It seems to have benefited from time, maybe more a lot of people like me growing up with it. But one of the things I thought was interesting was one article that said that in some ways, thematically, it feels like it resonates pretty well today, since, as you pointed out, one of its primary themes is the oil company exploiting a local indigenous population and its culture just for purposes of you know mercantile exploitation and the capitalism mm-hmm. and everything i thought okay well i mean exploitation in general right is the theme <clears throat> of the film although again like we said it's it's still a movie that is very steeped in the same problems as the original like in one of the things we noted was in both films the natives on the island are depicted in ways that are not really all that dissimilar from 33 to 76 and you're talking really uncomfortable racist stereotyping of black characters on an island doing native things primitive things and although arguably the production value is better and the acting better in 76 it's not really all that different although you point out at least one difference which was that in the 33 one for instance Faye Ray's Anne is clearly not participating you know willingly and is terrified through the whole thing Juan has clearly been drugged or or tranked up with something because it's like almost a 
like a surreal kind of aspect to it, a dreamlike quality. Well, it to seems that. like not just her. It seems like in the '76 version, I mean, maybe just because it's the '70s. I don't know. Maybe, but it seems like being given a drug of some sort, whether it's like a psychedelic. Or just something that completely like zones you out seems to be part of the process that when we when we meet the people of this village in the beginning, they're already preparing somebody else to be this bride of Kong. That's right. And you mentioned we went to see the 33 one, the the indigenous population, the native girl who was picked. You said how she looked worried. And, and yeah. you know, like uncomfortable about it. Whereas in the 70s when everybody seems like they're into it in some sort of weird. Yeah, like she had also yeah. been drugged before they started right. all of this. And so you're just kind of completely out of it while it's happening. And you're just off on a trip. There's also the weird stylistic thing in the 70s one where they add this thing of some of the natives in the ritual wearing what look like ghost costumes these white like full body sheets that look like ghosts and i didn't know i mean i don't know i didn't find anything that said definitively why they chose that but i thought is there some sort of weird intent to suggest these are like spirits of ancestors or something involved in the ritual i don't know because they're just inventing all this stuff yeah i mean to be honest anything they did was a 1976 attempt at like ascribing meaning mm-hmm. to a culture that well first of all was completely invented because the island's completely invented yeah but trying to ascribe like attributes to a culture that they really don't know anything about well let's step back for just a second and say that you know i would imagine most people listening to us talk about these have a basic understanding of the underlying King Kong story because it's kind of become a modern myth in its own way. Mm -hmm. But in the 76 one, which was the first major remake, um, famously uh, produced by Dino De Laurentiis, who in his thick accent, everybody always remembers, would go around to the the interview shows and talk about how my conk is the best conk. Then he take the conk, take the girl, put it under the water, then he sent in the water, and then when he, the girl come out in his hand, he start to, what do you say in English? Uh, blow. Blow. Blow dry. And uh, because the Kong cannot talk, he wants to say to the girl, I love you, but he cannot tell. He <laughs> was in a position to talk. And this is really very touching, but very difficult scene to do. One of the most difficult sequences to do it. Their idea was, let's remake king kong and of course one of the major breaks with the original at the time that everybody was really thrown by was they were not going to use stop motion they were going to use a guy in a suit which was the purview of toho and godzilla and the japanese giant monster movies and in this case it's a very young rick baker wearing the gorilla suit but also though with mechanics and animatronics designed by carlo rambaldi who probably maybe arguably most famously uh, created et Interesting, by the way, to note that the time this movie came out, uh, they were very keen to downplay Rick Baker's involvement. He's right there on screen as Kong. Arguably, I would say he's one of the best things about the movie. Baker's performance as Kong in that suit is an incredible performance. He's wearing an, an incredible amount of rubber and hair and fur and, and animatronics in the headpiece. 
and he's got contact lenses in because even though you see his eyes, he's got contacts in because they wanted his eyes to look the dark brown for Kong. And despite all that, he gives a performance. You can feel what Kong is thinking in some of these scenes. Usually it's the same thing he's thinking. We'll get to that. Mm -hmm. But you can feel there's an emotional being there. And yet they were so keen to downplay it that at the end of the movie, when we get these laying there at the end, spoiler alert, Kong dies in both movies. Sort of. I mean, actually, we'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah, they, they did a sequel to this one, so he wasn't technically dead. A text thing comes up and does like a special thank you to Carlo Rambaldi for his incredible work in designing Kong. But they didn't want to give Rick Baker his full due because they didn't want people to think about there being a man in a suit. Didn't you tell me that also Jessica Lange got a concussion from getting hurled around in the animatronic hand? Yeah, the, in one of the scenes, probably during one of the scenes where he's starting to poke at her, quite literally poke at her, The I think one of the fingers hit her in the head, possibly more than once, I can't remember. But yeah, she got smacked around by the, the hand because it was just, it once that thing was moving, it was difficult to stop it, you know, so. And yet they proceeded with it as anyway. a prop. Yeah, and I, I should say we we're talking about how people are basically familiar. I mean, the basic ideas here are the same in both films. A group of people on a boat with perhaps less than totally noble intentions and a desire to seek money and fame in this version of it for purposes of oil have gone to this island and disrupt a system that has been in place for countless generations in which an ape, a giant uh, preternatural ape, that has been treated as sort of a deity or a fearful being, depending on which version, mm. has been given brides. And also, we also talked about at the time, we don't really know whatever happened to any of them in either version. What has he been doing with the brides in either version? Does he just eat them? Because for Anne and Dwan, Anne he seems to be particularly interested in as like a little trophy. Dwan he's definitely emotionally interested in. Mm -hmm. But what happened to all the others? They're not around. So what happened? And, and that, that world is disrupted by the arrival of white men who come with cameras or oil equipment and wind up then eventually stealing Kong out of that world, destroying the native population's uh, lives, and of course leading to a big climb on a tall building in New York and a massive fall. And in the original, it's the Empire State Building. And here in 76, it was the recently completed and only recently opened World Trade Center, which is fascinating to watch today. Very much so. Um, and of course, another thing is, if you look at the famous poster for this film, you see Kong quite literally straddling the two towers and standing on top of both of them. He's that big. In the movie, he's small enough to be... On top of on one. On top of either one. Mm -hmm. And he jumps from one to the other because they wanted to make sure they got the use of both towers. But the thing is, that's another thing. In both these movies, he varies so widely in size. If you actually watch the original or this one with the intent of figuring out how big he is, he's literally a totally different height in nearly every scene depending on what they wanted him to be doing. It doesn't matter. That's so. kind of my big tip to anyone doing a giant creature movie of any sort is like mathematically decide how big your creature <laughs> is and then decide again mathematically how big does that mean their hands are? How big does that mean their jaw is? Their tail, if they have one. I don't want to tell you how to make your creature. But like decide it 
and then mathematically determine what the ratio is in size between that creature and say an adult human or a mountain or a tree or a building. It's like, it drives me nuts that movies just can't seem to get that right consistently because it's your creature. You made it. So like, shouldn't you be responsible for keeping the ratio right? We just watched it and I should have paid attention, but I will note the Wikipedia page does make a note of saying Rick Baker was uncredited. Hmm. Uh, also uncredited, by the way, for doing some of the vocalization for Kong is Peter Cullen, who is the voice of Optimus Prime for the Transformers. That's a big thing for a lot of people. So that's interesting. Story is very similar in both versions. And, and as we started out with, there are a lot of problems with this kind of story. Huge problems. Problems that perhaps are best left in the past where you don't tell the story or revisit it again. We did. I feel still nostalgically connected to these. I feel deeply conflicted about stuff like this. There are things like I mentioned, like Indiana Jones, where I don't even feel like I can put them on anymore. This, I, I felt like I could. I don't know why. Maybe the fact that he's like a monster or like a giant creature gives a bit of distance and enabled me at least to look at it again. Part of it also, I think, is the sound of it. You were talking about how much you love the music in this. Yeah, the the score in the 76 movie, which is by John Barry. This is one of those movie scores that instantly puts me back to being a kid again. Just hearing that. And, and it's a score that I'd say, if I'm being honest, is probably better than the movie it's in. It's, mm-hmm. it's an even better, more incredibly romantic, sweeping, melodic score. And he, it's incredible. And it always puts me right back there to like the night, like watching this, you know. So you I mean, know. having now seen it myself, I would agree with you when it comes to the music. I don't know how rewatchable I find this to be me personally. I found the 76 version more uncomfortable to watch than the 33. I can understand that. and that's... Which to me is very interesting because a lot of times the older version of something would be more tone deaf. Is right? more tone deaf. Yeah. But yeah. ultimately, I, I think this one was a little more tone deaf and a little bit more 70s maybe is the best <laughs> way to put it. But well, I mean, when you talk about in particular your female lead in both of them, they're introduced kind of in the same way and kind of not in the same way in that they both kind of like fall into the laps of the people going to the island, just in a different way. Although I will say, and I think you'd probably agree with this, is that it's kind of interesting. And also one of the early touches in the 33 movie I always liked is the part where they're in the little diner. I've got a job for you. Costumes on the ship will fit you. Broadway shops are still open. I can get some clothes for you there. Come on. But, but what is it? It's money and adventure and fame. It's the thrill of a lifetime and a long sea voyage that starts at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. No, wait. I, I don't understand. You must tell me. I do want the job, Silver. I, I can't... Oh, I see. No, you've got me wrong. This is strictly business. Well, I only wanted sure. to... Sure. Sure you did. I got a little excited and I forgot you didn't understand. 
Listen, I'm Carl Denham. Ever hear of me? Yes. Yes. You make moving pictures in jungles and places. That's right. And I picked you for the lead in my next picture. We sail at six. Where to? A long way off. Now listen, Ann. I'm on the level. No funny business. He's at least suggesting that Anne is not supposed to be in any danger from anyone involved in this for anything other than the job he wants to hire her for. When Dwan first shows up in the 70s one, we instantly get several really bro jokes about wanting to take her clothes off to check to see if she's okay. I've had the first day training, Captain. You all clear out of here? I'll examine her now? I guess you'll have to undress her, huh? Well, it's usual, in case of uh, internal injuries or multiple shock syndrome. Her go. Get out of here. Come on, yes, clear out, fellas. And it's definite that she's in trouble from all the guys on that boat. Well, not only that, but she was just in trouble from all the guys on the other boat that <laughs> she was on that exploded. It's like a Harvey Weinstein situation. Yeah, apparently. like she's somebody who wanted to get into acting and a producer is going to take her off to do this shoot, except that like gets on the, the boat with him and his friends and it becomes clear that like all the girls that got brought along are there to be prostitutes. And, you know, she gets mad because she doesn't want to watch Deep Throat. And so she goes up on the deck and it's the thing that saves her because the boat explodes. And because she was on deck, she gets like blown out to sea. And it's just, it's so 70s. It's just so 70s. But it's clear that they introduce her in the 76 version as this like perpetual victim. Mm-hmm. Like she is a victim and she's leaning into this victimhood. And in the 33, Anne is not really seen as this perpetual victim. She's seen as an unfortunate that she's somebody who's down on her luck. She's like literally fainting in the street. because She doesn't have any food and she's just, you know, trying to escape that life and it gives her an opportunity to escape it. I'd also say that from my perspective i feel like although fay ray doesn't get a chance in today's like parlance she doesn't get much agency once the story gets rolling like once they're on the island and she's taken it's like she's the damsel in distress in a very cliched and and textbook way but in the early stuff when they're on the boat it feels like she's got a very together personality she holds her own against jack you know, in, in what's very, you know, like we were saying, like this very clunky kind of stuff with them, but she seems to be pretty on par with him and he's scared of her because he's really like a little boy. Dwan is not like that at all. She's, she's very flighty and like... I was going to say languid. Yeah. She just kind of drapes herself on everything. She always everyone. sounds like she's high, which she very well may have been. I don't know. And uh, and then, of course, the, the crux of the thing for us is that in the 33 film, Anne is at best some sort of like prize or trophy that Kong is carrying around because he's sort of fascinated with her for whatever reason. But the movie makes no attempt to explore that in any way. She's just in trouble and he's a danger. And although he's like in all versions, 
he is ultimately not responsible. He's an animal that's been taken out of his place and he's trying to survive and he's killed and he shouldn't have been taken in the first place. He is a threat to her, mm -hmm. her safety. In the 76 one, he's a much more intelligent, almost human-like presence who is a, has some kind of emotional and sexual awareness as a being. And he's attracted to her. And it's very uncomfortable. And there's like nothing that can happen there. He but like he... dips her in a waterfall and then slowly blows like hot ape mouth air all over her. And she's kind of into it. Yeah, there's like an orgasmic kind of quality. And she just kind of goes with him thinking his breath can't be good. And it also, every time I see that scene, I remember my my family, my parents and I, we went to Florida twice when I was a kid, in 84 and 92, to go to Walt Disney World. In 92, Universal had just opened their Universal Studios Florida, and one of the big set pieces then was a King Kong ride. And think about the fact that, you know, it was already quite a ways after this, but it was like, hey, that's pretty cool. And part of the ride was you were going to actually like go in the thing and, oh no, Kong's out in the city. And as you go by, there's this giant animatronic Kong that you're like going past and he's trying to grab you. And they always. Oh, I've been on that ride yeah, now that I'm thinking about and it. And they always advertise the fact that you will smell his banana breath when you go by. And we were all very disappointed because there was no smell of banana breath when we went on it. <laughs> but but we were there like when they had first opened and the whole place was clunky, like they were just learning how to be a theme park. Mm -hmm. And it's possible that maybe they didn't have that right. But I'm thinking in 76, you know, when he's blowing on Dwan. It did not smell like bananas. That's not bananas. It is not. No. No. It, it makes me uncomfortable now just like talking about it. Like it's just. The, the face though is great. The animatronic mask they make. Because they made. I remember as a kid reading all the books, and mm -hmm. in one of the books that I had, I think it was Making a Monster, um, they went into detail about the fact that, if I remember this right, uh, there were three different Kong faces. Basically, they had three different heads sculpted at three different levels of intensity that it would start from. So in mm -hmm. other words, they couldn't possibly get from happy or sedate Kong to really angry one because it's too much of a transformation. So they had three at different levels of anger and then could manipulate past that with the animatronics. So if he needed to be angry, they put on like mid-angry face and then go. And so, I'm but, just imagining the mid one being, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> yes, exactly. But if I remember right, the, the one with that was a specific one because it had to be the one where the cheeks would blow up and make it look like he's actually blowing air. So it's like, there's a lot of work that went on to making an incredibly uncomfortable scene for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing I will say, though, about the 33 King Kong is that even though when he meets her and she's like, you know, I don't know that I'm really interested in being hurled onto a boat full of sailors for that kind of thing. And he's like, oh, no, no, you know, not what you think. It's an acting gig. But the thing is, he's looking for somebody expendable right from the start i mean the place that he starts looking is a women's shelter where he's like hanging out on the street outside a women's homeless shelter thinking he could pluck someone from the crowd and is disappointed because none of them look the way he wants to see on film and then just happens upon her at the newsstand nearby 
he knows going in that he's going to take a woman into this situation and it's going to be dangerous. It's potentially going to be deadly. She might not be coming back. And so he needs to find somebody who nobody's going to miss. And That's a good point. And like we were saying, unlike the 76 one, Denim in the 33 one already knows about Kong. And he knows exactly what danger he is putting her he into. He may not know exactly how big he is or like exactly what he's dealing with, but he seems to know quite a bit. I he knows he she's got to look up. He knows she has to look up. He knows she's going to be screaming her face off because that's, that's the scene, the, the famous scene, scene. The scene with her, like her screen test kind of scene, which is one of her best scenes. And it's like, but he already knows mm-hmm. that's what's going to happen. Now look higher. Still higher. Now you see it. You're amazed. You can't believe it. Your eyes open wider. It's horrible, Anne, but you can't look away. There's no chance for you, Anne. No escape. You're helpless, Anne. Helpless. There's just one chance. If you can scream, but your throat's paralyzed. Try to scream, Anne. Cry. Perhaps if you didn't see it, you could scream. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, Anne. Scream for your life. What's he think she's really going to see? The other thing, too, is, and I think it's an affection that comes from a lifetime of knowing the movie. I've always perceived Denim as being, well, I will say Denim gets uh, redeemed quite a bit in Son of Kong, which I think is a far, far better movie. Again, remember I was talking earlier about all the discourse on Kong? Besides seeing the 76 one rehabilitated by a lot of people, I've also seen everybody trashing Son of Kong and all of them go to hell because Son of Kong... Fair enough. Son of Kong is a really fun, far better than it has any right to be for being rushed out in the same year sequel. And he's fun in it because he shows genuine genuine contrition through the whole movie for everything he's done. He does he does cause the death of another giant ape, but it's it's done, it's done with affection. <laughs> it's done with affection this time, and. Uh, and he gets the girl at the end, and it's like he's like, you know, I'm sorry what I did to your to your to your you know old man, little Kong. And it's like that's that is it. actually one of the big distinctions, really, between thirty three and seventy six, is that our sort of focal point villain in thirty three makes it out alive, whereas in seventy six he gets smushed under a Kong foot and leaves his hat behind. Yeah, and I mean, in a way, it almost say the villain role you could oh well i would say the villain role in 33 is almost more on kong as the monster than on denim but like you pointed out when you really pay attention to denim's pre of awareness of what's going on Mm -hmm. it's hard to excuse anything because he knows although i will say (laughs) kind of why i'm defending carl denim why are you defending carl i don't know he's not a good person no no i mean he he doesn't run out on any of them either though i think the reason why he is what he is as a character is because he's basically marion cooper so it's like what Mm. with i'm we're not going to turn this episode into a whole thing on the 33 one because that would be a whole episode on its own but and there are plenty of of places where you can get that kind of a rundown i mean everybody knows this stuff if you know it like it's marion c cooper it it should sack his partner and they're basically the templates for denim and bruce cabot's character of jack driscoll and ruth rose who wrote rewrote the script for the original king kong who was should wife i believe yes um was told basically make denim 
Marion, make make him Cooper. So it's like, so this, I mean, the thing is, that's them on the screen. And maybe the, it seeps in maybe a little bit. The movie has a sympathy toward this character because it's the creator. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but what also seeps in, as you've pointed out, is the fact that you can tell he is someone who is deliberately putting her in jeopardy for his own benefit and everyone else. Too. And he's also insane. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that he's he's somebody who has the loyalty of the crew. They've been with him on many adventures. Yeah, the, the captain, captain respects him. Because yeah. they've always gone out and they've done these sort of adventure nature type films. And everybody's always come back and they feel like... Yeah, so far. So far. And so they all have this this sort of great affection for him. But they kind of present the scenario where he wants to just keep doing that same thing. And he's told by the studio that, you know, we really need some kind of romantic lead in here. There needs to be Mm -hmm. a romantic storyline. And I said, it's just so meta because you can feel it in there that the actual director wants to just go do nature films and has been told basically, no, you have to have a lead, like a romantic lead in yeah. there. And so that's where you get Faye Ray's character. Yep. And that's where Anne kind of enters the story. Because I joked when we were watching it, there's the moment where she's standing on the deck of the ship with Jack. And basically he's like, well, I love you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no. And she's like, oh, gee, me too. And it's like, yeah, that was him begrudgingly putting a romance into there and it was just sort of like a kid following their sibling around and keeping their finger like a centimeter away from their sibling's face and like Mm -hmm. i'm not touching you Mm -hmm. and it's like i love you i guess and it's like yeah he didn't want to put that storyline in there and so in a sense that also probably like influenced the way that they wrote her character as being expendable in his eyes because he really wanted to cut her out of the plot completely. Which is crazy because, quite frankly, truly, Faye Ray is what makes that movie. And Faye Ray is, is who makes the movie what it is. Like, without her, that film, regardless of all its other sort of impressive stop-motion effects, it doesn't have the same oomph there'd be no heart there'd be no heart to it Mm -hmm. there's no other character to really connect with emotionally in the movie she's the only one yeah and so yeah i mean it's you know she's there's a reason why she was an icon and i was also looking up again i mean you're right about the fact that like part of the development of this was he wanted to do a movie with komodo dragons and yes the whole thing of like naming kong because he liked these strong k words like komodo and kodiak and this like something that would grab people and it's like that's what he wanted to do he didn't want anything to do with that and then mm-hmm. it's like all right fine we'll put a girl in so that is it is very meta in 1933 for you know doing that and then i mean there's not to diminish of course it's the the stop motion that is amazing in both movies kong as a character is fascinating to watch rick baker's performance in the 76 one creates a very interesting and and uncomfortable as you pointed out but then also as you also said there's a sympathy 
to that character too, especially like him sitting in the oil tanker when they're going home. And it's like, you know, he's, he shouldn't, this <laughs> shouldn't be happening. He starts you know? like banging at the walls of it. And at some point you're like, you know what? Fair enough. Sink the ship. Yeah. It's fine. And you, I, you deserve to sink the ship. And I did always like the kind of part where he's so demoralized at that point that when she does fall in, he just lets her go back out. It's like, where are we going to go from here? Nowhere. He knows. So it's like, go back. He'll just watch her like climb away. But it's like, it's, he's a sad figure. And then the stop motion one though is extraordinary to watch from a technical standpoint, but also all the little character touches that were added, like, when he like kills one of the dinosaurs. Of course, the other thing too is the '76 one. As a kid, the one thing I found disappointing about the '76 one was how they decided to drop all the dinosaur stuff, except for the one fight with the snake. There's no other creatures, and they decided just not to try. And and it feels depopulated. And it's also another thing, by the way, about the '76 one that people often criticize, and I will agree with this: is it has a weird moment for all of its production value where they shot was it Hawaii? and beautiful vistas mm -hmm. for all that and then all of a sudden when you get to the point where night falls and they're following kong and you get to like the recreation of the log sequence in 76 suddenly they're standing on a soundstage that looks like they're in a closet with like a cyclorama behind them and it's like why did suddenly everything look so damn cheap it's it's horrible looking mm -hmm. and and like it really looks like a soundstage yeah it's terrible like the and the problem is when you have him in the suit without context or without putting him in with things mm -hmm. that provide additional scale there's like the scene where he takes her to his like two tower area where the steam is rising from the ground except that in one of the far shots it just looks like rick baker in the suit walking on a soundstage with like plaster rocks around him it's terrible looking do you think some of that is because of like the hd and the restoration or did it always look like that everybody's always thought that part looks terrible okay. even me <laughs> Or any of us that like it. But I think it definitely looks worse now. I, th mm -hmm. I think the differences are more obvious now. Yes. But I mean, that's the thing. So in the 33, when you have all the dinosaurs, beautiful work and like the, the character touches, I was saying, like when he kills a dinosaur in the 33 one, he'll do the thing of like playing with its jaw. Like, are you dead? Are you still dead? And it's like little extra touches. And you can see why, like this is the movie that, Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen were sitting in a theater watching this movie and going, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And for Bradbury, he was writing and Harryhausen was like that. And and go find O'Brien and learn. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to watch. And one, one little trivia tidbit I picked up on this last time that I thought is so cool is that idea that when when they were holding the various versions of him, you can see his fur rippling because you can't avoid it when you're using your fingers to move him around. The fur keeps moving and they couldn't really do anything about that. And apparently, I think it was an executive RKO or something, saw the test footage and said, it's amazing how you got his fur to look like it's bristling, like he's angry. And they thought, yeah, right. That's, that's what that is. <laughs> um, and it just adds extra character to it, that he looks dynamic and moving. Well, also having the dinosaurs in the movie really makes it feel like this is a whole world that is existing like he's just one part of this greater world that exists and it very much has that sort of jurassic park 
feel to it. Well, it all goes back. It all goes back to like Conan Doyle's Lost World kind of thing, Mm -hmm. like finding this like primordial place where everything's still there. Yeah, I mean, and there have been plenty of versions of that. We watch Lost Continent a lot on Mystery Science (laughs) Theater. The same idea, right? Like, there's this this section of a mountain of a place that suddenly you go there and it's full of dinosaurs and prehistoric yeah. plants hidden and from the from the modern world kind of thing yeah so i mean that really sets the scene and kind of gives him a place within that ecosystem and that they've done in the new stuff again mm. where they've they've restored the idea that there's a lot more than just kong which you know makes a little more sense to me um but i do think one part of the 76 movie that we're perhaps giving short shrift to here is uh, Jeff Bridges. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Jeff Bridges at his most 70s, which, to be honest, is just Jeff Bridges, like, perpetually. It's kind of interesting, too, seeing him. He's got his long hair and his beard, and he's, like, perfect hippie Jeff Bridges fighting the oil company. Meanwhile, you know, decades later... He would be an Iron Man playing exactly the kind of corporate guy that Jack would be fighting. So he's been on both sides of the equation and great at both. But He's essentially a stowaway on the boat. He bribes his way onto the boat, hides out, and then just like casually walks into a planning meeting in the back of the room, like looking like he came off the Greenpeace bus and not like he's a member of staff. And they're giving the whole, like, this is where the oil is going to be found speech. And he's like, or the giant monster, (laughs) slow clap. (laughs) And, like, seems confused when they, like, put him under boat arrest. I do like when uh, Groden takes the sandwich away from him. It's like, (laughs) little touches like that, I feel like, are Groden's thing, Mm -hmm. you know. He gave him a shirt. He's, like, madder that he's wearing one of their shirts than that he's there. Like, who gave him that shirt? Who is this joker? It's me. Yeah. Well, he's wearing one of your crew jerseys. Take it easy, take it easy. I'll pay any fair amount for my passage. You're a stowaway? No, Jack Prescott. I'm from Princeton, Department of Primate Paleontology. Department of... Are you lying hippie? You're from another oil company. How did you know about this? All right, man, the meeting is over. That's it. Wrap it up, man. This man's got one of our T-shirts. You issue a T-shirt, you keep working on it. So, yeah, as it turns out, he really is, like some sort of researcher, historian, like anthropologist. Yeah. I mean, he he's not exactly trying to stop them from looking for oil, but he wants to see the place that they're taking the oil from. You know, it's interesting is to get back to like the general thing of, you know, white men feeling just hugely privileged to do whatever the hell they want at mm-hmm. any particular point in time is the fact that he's supposed to be the environmentalist. But one of the things that comes up early is he's going to grab a boat and go over to the island and take pictures. Because how often do you get this opportunity? But invading their personal space and recording them on film is also something that's not necessarily something he's entitled to do. But he feels like that's okay. Like he's not going to you know rob them. But he is going to take pictures and analyze everything about their culture. And it's like, well, you don't really have that right either. Yeah, like he feels like he has the right to know what's there. Yeah. Um, And in a sense, he is probably the person on that boat who is most sensitive 
to the culture that they encounter when they get there because he's very clear about telling people to like keep their guns away and if they have to fire you fire into the air yeah. like we're not trying to take people out i do like his bit where he tells groden at one point that they're all going to be drunks because we've taken their god away which again also is a difference with this one and the 33 one in the 33 one it very much feels like they're terrified of kong and appeasing someone in the 76 one it's portrayed more as they respect him it's a or reverence. they worship him mm -hmm. yeah although saying they're all gonna turn to drunks because you took their god away is infantilizing yes the the native population of that place well again there's not that and much it's basically yeah. him like showing that he is problematic also. as well yeah like he is he's not necessarily a good guy in this and if the romance is kind of perfunctory in the 33 one it's not that different in the 76 one either they try to put the two of them together jeff bridges and jessica lang as dwan but they never really seem remotely like two people that would ever have gotten together in any other circumstances and one of the few things i always kind of liked about the way that goes is that it's made very clear they're not going to wind up together at the end of this either nor should they yeah, and, like, she's willing to just kind of go along with it. And he's like, I could, but, you know, this is not really what you want. And, I mean, right down to the end, she's being taken advantage of by the corporation because they want this whole performance of, like, here's the anthropologist and he saved her and the beast and they're going to get married and it's going to be this whole you know pr campaign for the oil company and he's like i'm not comfortable doing this like i'm not gonna do it like if you have any kind of feelings walk away from this and we'll just get away from this circus here and she thinks about it and then fred comes in and is like look you know if you don't do this you're never going to be able to make it as an actress which is what she really wants he's basically telling her like if you don't do this i'll tell people that you're difficult to work with and right. you're never going to get a part in anything and kind of forces her into it like she does not have agency like there's zero moments in this film where dwan has any agency at all really yeah she has no choice but to be charming for the people on the boat, because she was just being passed around on another boat that exploded. And if she has any hope of seeing dry land again, she has to make sure that she's like pleasant and charming on the boat that she's on. What was it you said earlier, too, that like she kind of just like drapes herself over? And I mean, like we all know Jessica Lange goes on to have quite a solid career and a lot of people respect her work now but when you watch this original performance one thing i always felt was she's kind of annoying in this in this movie and she has this thing throughout the film of always kind of this is something that doesn't come across on a podcast but of like always talking to people by like throwing her head down and looking like she's like a bag without bones and kind of like just like floating through scenes and again like she's i said she's diminishing herself it feels like she's high all the time 
And I don't know how real that is or if that's an acting choice. There's like a weird montage where everyone on the boat is bringing her pieces of clothing and she's just like (laughs) sitting on the bow making sexy poses while she figures out how she's going to take these perfectly serviceable articles of clothing and turn them into just fabric strips that cover two inches of her body. It's like, you don't need that on the boat. Just wear the shirt. Just wear the shirt. (laughs) But instead, she's got to take the shirt and cut 80% of it away and be like, this is a lovely shirt now. Thank you. And it's just, it feels just, it feels like the filmmakers trying to exploit the youth and beauty of Jessica Lange. And Jessica Lange, the up and coming actress who wants her big break, saying, well, I guess I need to just wear this tube top basically Mm -hmm. instead of a shirt and that's the only way i'm gonna you know break in it's like she is dwan in some respects like as an actress and i think that's part of what made me really uncomfortable watching it because every step of the way i felt like the filmmakers were taking advantage of their lead actress and i didn't feel that way watching the 33 king kong with Fay ray that there's a brief moment where Kong is like kind of peeling back the layers of Fay Ray's clothing. And there's nothing that feels like sexual about it, at least from the perspective of him. Yeah. That he's just like never seen stuff like this before. And he's just like, what is this? Like, it looks how like do a I get childlike fascination with yeah. it. Yeah. But clearly. There was no need for him to do that in the movie. And them doing that was a reason that you could get Feyre into a slip before you tossed her in a river. Right. And that exists for the filmmakers and for the audience and not for the story at all. Because she was not being exploited sexually in the 33 version. I think you were telling me it's like it was filmed pre-code but released after or yeah, something. Yeah, I think something like that. It's like teetering on one side or the other of the code really coming into force. Or maybe the code had already been established but it wasn't really being enforced just yet. Because there's stuff in the original King Kong. Here's evidence that this movie incorporated stuff that clearly under the Hayes Code would have been changed. Mm-hmm. Or... or uh, or like they never would have shot it that way at all, and they did. Um, and I can't remember. I think it's I think it's possible the code actually existed, but it just wasn't like the full enforcement of it had to start or something like that. But mm-hmm. for whatever reason, this was teetering on just the other side of it. Yeah, or maybe because also, it was just such a small yeah. part of a bigger film that they kind of just let it go. But like you said, maybe not sexually exploited in thirty three, but in seventy six, I do point out it's like. Baker's performance, the Kong you see in that movie, he is quite literally the the dictionary definition of leering in a lot of those scenes. He's really excited to be looking at her and to peel away the different pieces of clothing mm-hmm. and everything. And like even Fred, who makes a point right off the bat of being like, I'm married, he wants her and he's angry at his stowaway because he could actually have her. And it creates another weird, like, possession, ownership Mm -hmm. dynamic there that is very uncomfortable. 
and ultimately I think the feelings that that Dwan has for Kong of like wanting to see him not hurt you know which is fair I mean it is very touching like you get towards the end yeah and she's like begging him not to put her down because she feels like they won't shoot him if he's still holding her although that's a little too trusting on her part because he has just ravaged a huge chunk of new york city whether he's holding her or not they are going to shoot that ape Mm -hmm. like they don't care she's just one more person and he's already killed like dozens if not hundreds of other people so, I mean, in that sense, he almost knows better than she does, like, what men are capable of. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like, for her, it's still kind of childlike, like, wanting to protect him. I'm not sure that it's, like, this romantic feeling exactly in that moment. Like, there's some of it earlier... I don't know. It's really hard to know what she's thinking at any point in time because they don't really develop her character. Not really. At all. She is just one note. So it's really hard to say. But everyone else around her is also like equally kind of childlike and dumb too. Because the oil company is like, yeah, sure, bring the giant ape back and we'll do the show. And he's like, don't worry, everyone. He's well contained and there's still the like ankle restraints. And he's just like, whoop, whoop, like popping out of them. Like, it's no big deal. Like, no one tested these. He's like, they're steel. Like, no, it doesn't matter. And in the same way, you have, I, I hate that I can never remember character names. I just keep calling him Jeff Bridges. He's Jack Prescott. I actually saw one uh, article that annoyed me because somebody was saying, you know, there's one thing that stays the same in the 33 and 76 one is Jack Driscoll. It stays the same in both. It's like, no, he's Jack Prescott. In the 76 well, he's one. still Jack. He's still Jack, though. But, like, Jack calls the government and it's <laughs> like, I know where the ape is going. And if you promise me that you'll use nets and not guns, I will tell you where the ape is going. And mm. they're like, okay, sir, where is the ape going? And he tells them, and then they show up, and he's like, yeah, they're going to drop. What are those? Why are you shooting? Are those guns? Why are you shooting guns? You told me you wouldn't. It's like, of course they're going to. And like I told you, that was uh, that's 50 sci-fi icon John Agar and his cameo as the mayor saying, all right, professor, where, sure. where do we go to kill the ape? I mean, capture him, wink. It's yeah. like no one is interested at that point. No, nor should they be. Him. Again. It's in both versions. It's a horrible set of circumstances by the time you get to New York. This ape should not be there. Nothing should have been done that removed him from his natural environment. Once there, he is a threat. And there's not a lot of options for how to resolve that threat. And it's a tragic set of circumstances for everybody. And also just poorly organized, (laughs) like on both accounts, it's like in 33, he like invites all the members of the press simultaneously to just take photos of him on stage. It's and one like of the weirdest presentations. Just going off like crazy. And he's like, maybe don't do that. And they're like, more pictures. And then everything goes haywire. And he's like, well, crap. How, how could I have anticipated that would happen? You probably should have anticipated that would yeah. happen. Flashing lights and, and the And it's ape's the face. same thing. In 76, they almost make it worse because they try to, like, recreate 
the sacrificial altar. Yeah, they actually they have her, her play that out again. Except like instead of vines, it's like feather boas and they have her like... And as you pointed out, they Petrox hired black actors to play the natives and you were like, oh my God. <laughs> they put, like in the movie... Yes. Like in the movie and the movie itself, both hired black actors and put them in native gear in the most stereotypical way and told them this is going to be your part in the film. And it happens on both levels of storytelling. Ugh. And it's uncomfortable in all instances. All instances. The whole, the whole thing. I was, I was very uncomfortable for a large portion of the movie. I will say when they're actually filming in Hawaii, the vistas are beautiful. Like, I would love to see that kind of nature up close. I mean, they have, like, the yeah. water cascading down the rocks. Yeah, it's that, beautiful. That beach with that um, that one, like, the archway. Uh, archway through. Yeah. yeah, you can, I forget what it's called now, but that one beach, you can look that up, and that's obviously a place you can go, and it's stunning looking. I don't know. Maybe codenamed Diamond Head did some shooting <laughs> around there. Um, but, yeah, but I mean, it's beautiful looking. But then, yeah, it just makes the the shift all the more jarring when they do the weird soundstage stuff yeah i just i think for me ultimately like if i were going to summarize my feelings on these two movies is that in the 33 king kong fay ray makes that movie like she is the star of that film and she is as you've said the heart of the film she not just as an actress, but her character as well is sort of like the glue that holds all the other characters together. And like you see her on the boat, like chatting with the Chinese chef that like everybody else I love just like character. blocks out. Even though and he she also just is... chats with him. I mean, there are he's other... also in a thankless role. For there me. are a lot of ethnic stereotype yeah. issues in that, yeah. but she will sit and talk with him as if she were talking with a member of the bridge. Right. You know, and so it's like that type of character work that tells you who she is. In the 76 King Kong, the character who I would say has like the most heart, I guess, is Jeff Bridges. Yeah. You I know, playing so. his Jack character. And even then, I'm not really sure I like him mm -hmm. all that much. But Dwan is basically just a prop. Mm -hmm. Like, she's just a piece of the set that gets, like, moved from scene to scene to scene. But she's not really given character development. And there is no comparison. I mean, there's not a lot of comparison to Faye Ray anyway. Yeah. Like, in general. But if you just look at those two roles and you look at Jessica Lange as Dwan and Faye Ray as Anne... You can't compare them. They are not comparable characters. And so you've kind of eliminated the heart that was in that first original version of the movie. And I don't really know why they did that. Maybe it's because they felt like it was a little... Like it was a little too much having a sort of ingenue kind of character maybe by 1976 they were like are we really still with the ingenue because she is kind of like that i doubt that was a reason because like when you see everything else that happens in the 76 one i don't think that's something they would yeah. care about so i mean i don't know it's it's a strange choice to make to really change 
the whole nature of that central character so much. It's weird since so many of the other things... I mean, the biggest change, one of the biggest changes, is certainly the idea of changing it from they're going there to make a movie to they're going there to find oil. Which which scans. Yeah, which gives you a great new thematic reason. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I was going to say earlier is, would you say from a modern perspective then... Would one way of interpreting the Kong figure just in general, especially the 76 one, was would we, would we now say that he's like an embodiment of toxic masculinity? Would that be what we'd say? Or are we already moving away from that as a catch-all phrase for... Honestly, I don't think so. Because then essentially what you're doing is you're ascribing human attributes to that Kong character in the same way that people would use to say that he represents like a threat of black men to white women. And also he's a symbol of at the same time of humanity uh, uh, exploiting and destroying the environment mm -hmm. and, and, and natural uh, and indigenous populations and, and animals like him because we do that all the time i mean you could argue that like groden's fred and yeah. also um denim in the original yeah they are both embodiments of toxic masculinity okay. they're also both embodiments of white privilege they're embodiments of like the dangers of colonial thinking the white man's burden could this be why kong lasts then is that he's sort of a a mix of a lot of symbols happening at once and gives us an opportunity to, to look at those things? Or is it still a case of we could certainly retire this story and never do another Kong thing again? I think you could still hit on the thematic elements without using Kong as like the linchpin in that story. I mean, what's interesting is he's now paired frequently, well, frequently, twice really, but everybody thinks of them often together and now it's been that thinking has been brought back to the forefront with the new Godzilla Kong thing is these mm -hmm. are two characters that are often thought of together and definitely, as I mentioned earlier, have a lineage that connects the two. But Godzilla is a figure that was created by the Japanese filmmakers as a commentary on their own experience through World War II and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He became a goofy kid's character. But that first movie is an incredibly complex commentary on post-war Japan that they knew when they were making it. Mm -hmm. And it's very different from what Kong is. Yeah, and I mean, really, when you look at the two figures, Kong is presented as a being that exists naturally in that environment. Right. Kong has always been there or has been there for a long time or versions of Kong have been there for a long time. Whereas Godzilla is a creature that was essentially created by man's aggression against man. Right. Right. And so they kind of represent two very different right. ideas. Um, you know, would I say no one should ever make a Kong movie again? I don't know. I don't want to tell people what to do. Um, we might not watch it though. <laughs> I don't think it's necessary. I I think that it would be very difficult to convince me 
that there is a new story to tell when you can already pull these themes and these thoughts and these ideas from the original that they made in 1933. You can watch that in isolation and you can talk about the themes and the metaphors and everything that comes from it and you never have to make it again. Um, so I don't know. Do we need another one? No. Are we going to have another one? Yes. They're going to keep making them. They will always keep making them because they want to sort of take a known entity and capitalize off of that name recognition. There's plenty of people who they're like, look, I just want to see an action movie this weekend. That one has King Kong in it. And I know that I like the King Kong movies. And so therefore I will go see that. And so I don't think they're ever going to stop. Um, but and the rights are all over the place. The rights are like owned in three different ways. And I was trying to unravel all that. There's no way to uh, quickly encapsulate how crazy the King Kong rights are, but they're terrible. Um, including things like side steps, like uh, a lawsuit with Nintendo for Donkey Kong and all that. But it's craziness how many different entities own bits and pieces and some of it's in the public domain now you know the novelization for the first movie mm. was published before the film came out hmm. and technically the novelization if i remember that part right is in the public domain meaning any elements of the plot that appeared in the novel are uh, exploitable by anybody mm-hmm. i think don't by the way don't go by what i say <laughs> if you're planning your kong project do some research for us and due diligence with look the lawyer. into the rights beforehand. Um, but I think the one last thing I will say, which I found super interesting and is in absolutely no way related to any of the themes or plots or anything that we've discussed, is what you were telling me about the origin story of another cryptid that everybody talks about. And how it was born, perhaps, from people seeing some of that stop motion in the original King Kong, which I find fascinating. Oh, okay. Well, I'll be happy to share that as we wrap up then. Because I've also been going through a thing late at night where I've been revisiting episodes of In Search Of. And that will always be a major touchstone for me. And if you grew up in the 70s particularly, we were always inundated by countless documentaries and stories of Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and the Yeti and, and all sorts of things. And it's the Loch Ness Monster about which I speak because if you remember the bit in the 33 movie where they get on the raft, they build the raft to go across the water like idiots and the <laughs> plesiosaur or whatever like pops up and looks and goes, hmm, food, and then goes back down and then comes up right next to them. Which, by the way, as silly as that shot is, because it's nicely shrouded in fog, has always made me very uncomfortable stuff coming from underwater and shots from underwater of the Loch Ness monster or things like that have always been one of my things I cannot take it, it makes me very uncomfortable and well also that dinosaur just keeps picking people up in its mouth and wriggling them around uh, and then tossing them aside it's pretty terrible even it's intense yeah I, I mean terrible in a good way it's pretty terrible even given the quality of the production it's pretty that's a good sequence but what I never knew until recently looking it up is, so this came out in early 33, and although instances of reports about seeing some kind of creature in the lake in Loch Ness had existed going way, way back, I mean, we're talking 
ancient stories as well, the vast majority of reports and the big boom in interest in the lock and the creature that happened in the 20th century happened starting in May 1933. And there are people that believe that the reports started ramping up because people who saw King Kong and saw that scene in particular were now starting to map that experience onto being at the lock and seeing something in the lake, and that that may have actually sparked the 20th century phenomenon of the Loch Ness Monster. What is beneath the surface of the lock? We will be closer to knowing the answer. Closer for having discovered new evidence in search of the Loch Ness Monster. And I never read that before. It's fascinating to me that King Kong could have been responsible for, you know, in search of, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLatovsky, that's NBLitOfSky, and Arnold at Doctor the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were King Kong 1976 and King Kong 1933. Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. Well, thanks for straightening the whole thing out, Doc. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> what a relief. Uh, good night.